I recall when I was a boy that my mother used to tell me not to watch too much TV. If we had a television on, she would kind of turn it off and shuffle us outside and tell us to go out and play. And our teachers would tell us the same things at school. If you watch too much television, it will rot your brain and you'll never be amount to anything. So quit watching so much television and and they would shoo us off. Of course, preachers would warn of moral decay that would come from too much television watching and all these things. And I began to think not too long ago, I just wonder, I mean, how much television does someone really watch? And so I got my calculator out, and I just did a little mathematics. My teachers would have been so proud of me. Um, <laughs> if a person watched just two hours of television a day, and they lived to be 85 years old, they would watch 62,050 hours of television in their lifetime, or just slightly more than seven years. This just two hours a day. Well, it got me thinking about all kinds of other things like that we do a lot. Sleep. How much do you sleep? If you slept eight hours a day, your life, you'd sleep 248,000 hours. That's 28 years. I think I have sons who are pushing the 30-year mark. You know, I can never get them out of bed. Eating? You'd eat five and a half years of your life away. Think your kids spend a lot of time in the shower? You're right. Two to three years of your lifetime is spent in the shower. Putting on makeup, ladies, or gentlemen, waiting for someone to put on makeup. Um, Four years of your lifetime, and I told my wife I waited on her a lot, didn't I? 28 years of sleeping, seven years watching TV, six years eating, three years in the shower, four years putting on makeup or waiting for someone to put on makeup. But if you went to church every Sunday of your entire life, from infancy, you would spend less time in church than you spend in the shower. Just a little over six months of your life. Every Sunday. Well, I mean, it seems like a great disparity, doesn't it? It, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out. It's not right. And I got to thinking, why would people spend more time getting ready to go somewhere than they maybe actually spend when they get there, you know? That we might spend more time preparing. And maybe it has something to do with the place. Think about going out to eat. If you were going out for a meal in the evening, how much time would you spend preparing? And you would say, it depends on where you're going, right? Uh, If you're taking some friends or family to a ball game, not a lot of preparation going there, you know? You pick up some some burgers along the way or get a hot dog at at the game. It doesn't take a lot of preparation. But if it's a special dinner... An anniversary, maybe, or a gathering with some friends at a, at a nice restaurant, or, or maybe a, a first date. Well, you, you prepare a little more for those kind of events, don't you? And you get ready. We do a lot of things at getting ready. We're, we're always kind of in this world of preparation, aren't we? It seems like I'm always getting ready to go somewhere and, and, and getting ready to do something. And no matter what you do, whether it's a job interview or a date or uh, just uh, whatever you're planning to do, there's always this sort of preparation. There's always things to get ready. Always time to spend getting ready to do whatever it is you're going to do. Whether it's go to church or go to dinner or go to a film, it's always about getting ready. But have you ever been caught off guard? Um, Have you ever been surprised? Uh... 
you know, there's a metaphor we use. It's called sucker punch. Um, it's when you're not paying attention and someone hit you when you were a little kid on the playground, maybe. Um, not that that ever happened to you. But it, you were probably always prepared. Me, I, I was probably never prepared. But the idea of being hit suddenly. Uh, my, my friend Ruth, she was, uh, this was probably um, about 12 years ago. She was in her 50s and was climbing up into her attic. She had a garage, an attic door in the garage, pulled it down and climbed up in there. And there was one of those parking bumpers in her garage, you know, like where you're in a, in a parking lot and you pull up to and it stops your car from rolling over top of it. Well, she had one of those in her garage and she climbed up to, the, to get some things out of, the, out of the attic. And when she's coming down, she tripped accidentally. She fell back and she hit her head on this parking bumper and she died instantly. And, and her husband had just gone up to the store to get some things, and they were going on a trip, and that's why she was up there in the attic. And I remember the, the secretary at the church, uh, as I walked in, I was an associate pastor, and she walked in, and she says to me, uh, you know, Ruth has died in a, in a kind of tragic accident. And I was not ready for it. I was completely unprepared for it. How do you, how do you ever get ready for something like that, you know? And, and so I walk in and, and suddenly everything that I had thought about that day, all the preparations that I had made, all the plans to do whatever it was I was going to do, I don't even remember what they were now. Because there was all of a sudden something else on the top of my agenda. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet goes to temple. He's gone to temple many times before. This is nothing new to him. He's perhaps been there every Sabbath day or at least every festival occasion since he lives in Jerusalem most of his life. He is a royal prophet. He's close to the king and so he probably spends quite a bit of time at the temple. And he goes in on one particular occasion, as was read earlier in the service, in Isaiah 6. He goes in to worship. I think Isaiah is a pious man. He's not going there merely out of habit or, or, or rote. He goes there because he really does want to pray. He really does want to draw close to God. But he is not at all prepared for what happens. Somehow, in the midst of his worship, Isaiah in his mind, or at least in his mind's eye, is drawn up into heaven. And he says he begins to see God. He sees the Almighty present in the building as if all of a sudden the Almighty were present in this building. And he says he was seated on a throne. And he was so big that the very hem, the very edge, the bottom part of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah begins to see God. And he sees these angels flying around, uh, covering their face and covering their feet and flying with wings. I think Isaiah is a bit surprised, a bit scared perhaps, a, a bit shocked as the angels cry out, Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh in Hebrew. I'm sure they said it in Hebrew. And, and they're flying around and, and Isaiah is a bit surprised. He's, he's shocked by this. In Hebrew, if, if you wanted to emphasize something like pure gold, you would say it twice, gold, gold. It would emphasize the purity of the gold. Other places in the prophets where they talked about a, a fruit being filled with pits, they would just say pits, pits, as if to say it's filled with pits. Perhaps you noticed a thrice render, uh, rendering of holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, He is not like any of us. 
In, in the Hebrew mind, a holiness is, is separation, different, distinct, transcendent. God is not like any of us, which is why Isaiah later will say, His ways are not our ways. His, th- His thoughts are not our thoughts. We are so different. It also speaks of moral purity. God is not like any of us. And, and so the prophet says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And Isaiah is also surprised by the glory of God. The whole earth, he says, is filled with his glory. I think what the prophet is saying is that all of a sudden he goes to temple completely planning on going through the liturgy. Oh, I know the steps. Here's what we do. Here's what we say and when we say it. I've done this a thousand times. And for those who are, who are anti-liturgical folks who would say, see, you don't need that liturgy. No, even an even a, a unplanned liturgy is a liturgy nonetheless. I've been in Pentecostal churches where people know right when to raise their hands. God bless the Pentecostals, I love them. But I, I'm just saying, it, it's not about the liturgy. It's about the sense that we kind of get in these patterns of predictability, don't we? We go in and we know when to sit and stand and what to say. And Isaiah does that too. Only one thing happens. In the midst of his going through the liturgy, he suddenly is confronted with the living Almighty God. Holy in all that he does. Different in all that he is. And the prophet is shocked. I wonder. I wonder in all of our preparation this morning to get up and go to church. I wonder if any of us were really ready to come into the presence of the living God. Isaiah does, and it happens to him. I don't think he's ready either. But when he finally does come to terms with what he's seeing, the Lord asks a question, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? In other words, who's going to go, Isaiah, and tell the people around what it is that's on my heart? And Isaiah looks around, and I think he realizes he's standing there alone, as if to say, I wish there was somebody else, but there's not. Here I am. Send me. I told you before that I went to a Methodist seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's a great school. A wonderful school. It's called Asbury Theological Seminary. It's down in the middle of nowhere. Uh, You have to drive through a thousand horse farms to get there. It's the most beautiful drive you'll ever take. And so you go down into this little bitty town in the middle of of Kentucky. And there's this great seminary there. And as you go into town, there's the first thing that you see on your way into Wilmore is this big statue of this man sitting on a horse. The man's name is Francis Asbury. Well, of course, this, it was made after it. The statue's not actually Francis Asbury, you understand? But there's, there's a statue of Francis Asbury sitting there on his horse. And you drive in, and, and right behind the statue is the seminary. And, and across the street is Asbury College. And these great institutions of learning. Uh, a little bit about Francis Asbury. He was, um, he was sent here from England by John Wesley, an Anglican priest to begin to form Methodist societies in the Americas. And when the Revolutionary War broke out, every single Methodist preacher that was in the colonies left and returned to England, save for one, Francis Asbury. He was ordained or consecrated one of the first two bishops in the Methodist Church. And from his time of consecration until his death, he watched Methodism in America grow from 1,200 members 
to 214,000 members in just about three decades. Francis Asbury traveled 100,000 miles on horseback. He did what all bishops did, baptized babies, you know, confirmed young children, ordained people to the ministry. But his, read his journal sometime, his one controlling passion was to preach the gospel. Was to preach the gospel everywhere. He rode as far as into Kentucky and Tennessee when it was nothing but Indian territory and set up churches and preaching places. I think it was during my graduation that, that someone first mentioned in an official capacity this statue. The president was talking about it, and he said, you know the statue out there. Of course you know the statue if you go to Wilmore, Kentucky. There are three things in Wilmore, a seminary, a college, and the statue of Francis Asbury. That's about it, you know. Uh, and, and, you know the statue out here, he says. Well, of course we know the statue. Well, you'll notice the statue of Bishop Asbury is pointing out of town. It was designed that way for a reason. You come here to this seminary to be deepened in the faith, to be saturated in the faith, to learn the Bible, to learn theology, to, to grow in your spiritual formation, to be saturated in your relationship to the Almighty. Not to stay here, but to go. To leave Wilmore and go wherever it is the Lord is sending you. And I think, I think maybe, you're all way ahead of me, aren't you? I think maybe that's what we do too. I think maybe it's okay that we spend more time preparing to get here than we do actually here. I think maybe it's okay that we don't spend our whole lives in church because we gather to see the Lord present in order to go. In order to go to the, the person down the hall at work. In order to go to the neighbor across the street. Or the homeless people across town. Some of us, it doesn't mean leaving your zip code, but it does mean that we leave your comfort zone and that you step out and proclaim the gospel wherever it is that the Lord sends you. Maybe we come into the presence of the Almighty this morning and we catch just a glimpse of Him and we hear Him ask us a question. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And maybe... Maybe we raise up our hand and look around and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Amen.